When Mark chapter 1 ends, Jesus made a very dramatic rescue of a man who was um, demon-possessed, or a leper, I should say. He was uh, cleansed by a leper. And, and yet we see also that there's um, opposition beginning to rise against Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. And, and here we find some of that in Mark chapter 2. And the reason why I'm preaching on this is because I was reading through this some weeks ago, and this is just one of the most wonderful stories in the whole Bible. You know, the, the life of Jesus is a wonderful story. And when I say it's a story, I don't mean it's a story like a make-believe story. It's a true story. It, it's a real factual account. The things that the Bible says happen, they really happen. But you can't deny, it's also a tremendous story. It just draws us in and grabs us. And, and I think that this account from the Gospel of Mark is just like that. So let's take a look at the first couple of verses. Verse 1. And again, he entered Capernaum after some days... And it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately, many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them. No, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. So we see the popularity of Jesus is exploding. There he is doing his ministry all around the region of Galilee. He's making his way to the towns and villages and the few cities that he had. And everywhere he goes, people are absolutely thrilled to see Jesus for two reasons. First of all, he's preaching the word. Did you see that phrase at the end of verse 2? And he preached the word to them. Jesus Christ was a preacher of the word. He was a Bible teacher. He went and he taught the great truths of the Word of God. Now, we would call that, what Jesus taught today, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. But he proclaimed the Hebrew Scriptures to people, and he told them how the Messiah was right there fulfilling them. It's a thrilling thing to think about. But not only did Jesus do that, but he also had an amazing work of doing miraculous things. Healing lepers, healing the blind, just like we saw in that amazing video. Wasn't that beautiful? When Tony Clark, yes saying that song in that video that just went so perfectly with it, that was so touching. But listen, that's what Jesus did. And you can imagine, a man like that, he's going to draw huge crowds. Well, that's what's happening here in the first two verses. So now Jesus is in a house preaching. The crowd is huge. Verse 3, and when they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men, when they would not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. Do you have the scene in your mind? You see, sometimes when I teach the Bible, I say that it should be like a movie running in your head. Now, I, we don't have the video of this, but we can just imagine what the scene was like. There's Jesus preaching the word in a house, and the house is so crowded that you couldn't get in. And that's a beautiful thing to think about right there. There's so many people crowding that house, wanting to hear the words of Jesus that you just absolutely cannot understand. So here comes four friends carrying their, bed, their friend on a bed. Now, we would call that bed something like a stretcher, something like a cot. They're carrying him on that. And they come up to the house and go, listen, our friend is paralyzed, and, and Jesus heals people. He probably heals paralyzed people. Let's go bring this man to Jesus, and Jesus will heal him. Aren't you impressed with the love that these four men had for their friend? Load him up on the stretcher, take him to Jesus. By the way, isn't that a beautiful thing that you can do for your friends, is just simply bring them to Jesus? Because I'll tell you, Jesus has the answer that they need. 
In any regard, here they come up to the house, and what the first thing they say, we can't bring him to Jesus. There's too many people here. The house is so crowded, you can't even get into the house, much less bring in there a man on a stretcher with four friends at each corner. There's no way you'd ever get him. We'll never get this guy to Jesus. And one of them has a bright idea. And what's the bright idea? Let's take the man up on the roof and lower him down before Jesus. Now, we don't know exactly how they did this. We do know that it was customary in those days for people to have something of a patio on their rooftop. That wasn't unusual. And those patios almost always had an exterior staircase that you could reach it by. So it's not crazy to think that there's an exterior staircase to this house. They go up there, they go up on the patio, and then right over there, they start taking it apart, and they say, let's lower this guy down before Jesus. Can you imagine what that scene was like? It says there, when they had broken through, they let him down on the bed in which the paralytic was lying. Again, when I think of that scene, I can't help but just smile. Because listen, this wasn't like um, some clinical, technical, mission impossible, lowering something down on a system of pulleys and such. These were four guys struggling with what we know, the best we know, a bunch of ropes or whatever, lowering their friend down in fits and starts. First of all, the sermon just gets interrupted by the roof coming apart. And listen, I've I've preached a lot of sermons, and I've had some of them interrupted in pretty entertaining ways, but I've never had the roof come apart and somebody lower somebody down. And can you imagine, imagine when they do that, how they come down and, you know, one end of the stretcher gets down a little bit lower, and the whole crowd gasps, and everybody's wondering, isn't somebody going to put a stop to this? They're all looking to Jesus. Jesus, what are you going to do about this? Now, in our modern day and age, wouldn't the preacher often just say, get security on those guys and get them out of here? <laughs> but not Jesus. What does Jesus say? He doesn't say anything at first. He just lets them lower them down. And I'm sure with a great big smile on his face, Jesus is looking at this whole scene, this bizarre scene unfold before him. What happens next? Look at verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, stop right there. When Jesus saw, notice the plural, their faith. It doesn't say his faith. If it was singular, we might think he's referring to the faith of the man on the stretcher. That's not what he's referring to. He's not talking about the faith of the man on the stretcher. Jesus saw the faith of the four men, the four friends, lowering the man down. They had faith. Because whatever you want to say about those men, they were too bold. Uh, They were destroying property. Can you imagine being the homeowner there and seeing, ay, 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 what's happening here to my roof? Look at this. Who's going to repair this? What's happening? Instead of being just vandals destroying property and and, and men too bold for their own good. No. What were these men? These men, they really believed that Jesus could heal this man. They wouldn't have gone to all the trouble. They wouldn't have gone to all the effort. And sure as anything, they're saying, listen, we don't want to go through the trouble of bringing this guy back up. We're, We're hoping that we don't have to bring him up. We want him to walk out of here instead of having to bring him back up through the roof. Jesus saw their faith. I'll say something else that the text doesn't say, but it has to be true. Jesus also must have seen their love. He looks, these men, they love their friend to go through all this trouble with this. Okay, back to verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, 
he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven you. Now, that's a remarkable statement, isn't it? I can just imagine the friends up in the roof yelling down, no, he's paralyzed. Jesus, you're addressing the wrong problem. The problem with this man is he's paralyzed. That's what he needs. It's not like, Jesus, you think we'd go through all this trouble if this guy was just some notorious sinner who needed forgiveness? We'd say, go up to the altar yourself and talk to Jesus. No, Jesus, we're doing this because he's paralyzed. I want you to notice, so Jesus said that, and I want you to see the reaction of the religious leaders. It's right here in verse 6. Some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, when Jesus said that, when he said those words, son, your sins are forgiven you. I think this is an incredibly dramatic moment in the story. First of all, the, uh, the paralyzed man is there. The paralyzed man is probably thinking something like this. He says, you know what? People have often thought that I'm here, that I'm paralyzed because there was some special sin in my life. I never really knew if I could be forgiven. But this man just called me son, a term of endearment. And he's dealing with this need in my life. Now, the friends thought, listen, that's not the guy's problem. He's paralyzed. The crowd thought, this is the most exciting church service we've ever been to in our life. What's going to happen next? (laughs) But the religious leaders thought this. The religious leaders thought, This is way out of bounds because it is only within the power of God to forgive sins. And it says right there in verse 6 and 7 that they were reasoning in their hearts. Now, I want you to think about this. I want to give a little bit of credit to the religious leaders. We we bash on the religious leaders in Jesus' day a lot and for good reason. But sometimes I think we misunderstand them. And I'll tell you where I think we misunderstand. I want to say three good things about these religious leaders. First of all, it it was a good thing that they reasoned in their hearts about what Jesus said. I hope that whenever you read the Bible or hear a sermon, you're reasoning in your heart about what Jesus said. They didn't just say, okay, whatever, he said it, great. No, they're thinking about it. You should think about what Jesus says and think through the implications of it. That's the one good thing that they did. The second good thing that they did was they asked questions about what Jesus said. Listen, you should ask a lot of questions. When you don't understand something, when you read something in the Bible that doesn't make sense, ask questions about it. The third good thing that they did was they were really actually thinking through Jesus' ministry. Listen, it wasn't bad that the religious leaders were evaluating the ministry of Jesus. They did have a responsibility to guard the faith of Israel and to make sure that there weren't false teachers doing their thing because there were false teachers in those days, getting crazy. No, the problem wasn't that they reasoned in their hearts. The problem wasn't what they asked a question. The problem wasn't that they evaluated the ministry of Jesus. The problem was, was that they did it all out of a bad motive and they did it all, all unfairly against Jesus. 
That was their problem. Because they asked the question, who can forgive sins but God alone? You know, that's another good thing I could say about it. They were using right logic. Brothers and sisters, the only one who can forgive your sins is God. We don't have a pastor or a priest who can forgive your sins. Now, they can assure you that your sins are forgiven, and sometimes that is a wonderful gift from God. But they don't forgive your sins, only God can. I'll tell you, time won't forgive your sins. A failing memory won't forgive your sins. You could do a thousand good things and it won't in and of itself forgive your sins. Forgiveness comes from God alone. Success won't forgive your sins. Wishful thinking won't forgive your sins. And I'll add one more time, one more thing. You can't forgive your own sins. Only God can forgive sins. Therefore, we must go to Him for the forgiveness of sins. Now, they were right in making that point. Where were they wrong? In not perceiving that God was right in front of them, there with the power to forgive sins. You know, because we must go to Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, it's essential that we keep a humble, confessing heart before Him. All right, look at Jesus' response here in verse 8. But immediately... When Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within himself, he said to them, why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise, take up your bed, and walk? Jesus heard their words, but he, through a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, he could also perceive their corrupt hearts, their bad motive in asking the question. So Jesus brought a question back to them. He said, which is easier to do? Is it easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or is it easier to say, take up your bed and walk? Now listen, for for us, just on a human level, it's impossible for us to do either thing. But with God, both are easy. It's logical to assume that if Jesus can do one, he can do the other. But let me say this. In a way, it was harder to heal the man than to forgive his sins. This is what I mean by that. Is that the forgiveness of sins is invisible. You can't outwardly, at least not many times, you can't outwardly tell that a person is forgiven. There's not a light in their head that switches from red to green. Although that would be awesome if there was. Wouldn't that make evangelism so much easier? Now, I will say that I have seen a remarkable, immediate change in the countenance of people many times when they've come to Christ, which is glorious. But you understand what I mean. There's no outward sign like a light. The forgiveness of sins is, in some regard, invisible. But everybody can tell whether a man is healed from paralysis. Either he has to be carried out on that cot or he's going to walk out. Now, according to William Barclay, some of the rabbis of Jesus' time believed that it was impossible for a sick man to be healed until his sins were forgiven. It may very well be that Jesus was saying, 
I'll take care of both problems. Put me to the test. And so, Jesus speaks in verse 10. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. By the way, it's interesting that Jesus used that title of himself, the Son of Man. I I don't mean to get off on a digression. It would be easy to do this. So much in the Bible just fascinates me. But I believe that Jesus used that title, the Son of Man, for a specific reason. Because it was a messianic title, no doubt about it. When you go to the book of Daniel, when you go to other passages in the Old Testament, Son of Man is a messianic title, but... It wasn't a messianic title that had the associations that the Jewish people of this day expected. The Jewish people of Jesus' day were looking for a Messiah, but they weren't looking for a humble servant, a Messiah of love that Jesus was. They were looking for a conquering general. And Jesus avoided some of the messianic terminology that would point to that. And instead, he chose the title Son of Man. He referred to himself that way many times. So he said, so that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Now again, I'm blown away by this. Can you imagine the tension in the scene? Is the movie running in your mind? Those scribes and religious leaders, they were tense. Because Jesus flat out challenged them. And he said, I'm going to demonstrate to you that I am the Son of God. And there's tension there. The, the paralyzed man was tense. He's thinking, is this really going to happen or not? Uh, what's going to happen just in the next few moments? My life is either going to be changed forever or not changed. What's going to happen? The owner of the house was tense. Because he's wondering, they took apart my roof. And is this even worth it? I'll tell you who else was tense. The crowd was tense because they sensed the tension of everybody else. And if there's any last group of people that's tense, it's the four friends holding the ropes right then. What are they saying? They're saying, listen, Jesus, whatever you're going to do, would you do it quickly? We're cramping up up here. Just do it. I'll tell you, the only person who was not tense in the whole scene was Jesus. Can you see Jesus there? Just serene with a smile, perfect peace. But think about it. He did have perfect peace because imagine if Jesus had failed in this situation. Imagine if he says to the guy, your sins are forgiven you. You're healed. Take up your bed and walk. And then the man on the stretcher, he struggles. He lifts himself up on an elbow. He tries to move his hips. He tries to wiggle his foot. But nothing happens. His ministry would be shattered. The crowd would slowly leave the house. Those scribes and religious leaders would smile and say, you know what, that guy can't heal or forgive. The four men would struggle to pull up the paralyzed man. And the paralyzed man would have a more dejected and embarrassed look on his face than you could ever imagine. And the homeowner would look at his roof and he would say, all that for this? But listen, that's only under the theoretical idea that what if Jesus failed? You know that Jesus can never fail, don't you? Never. It's impossible that Jesus could fail. So what happened? 
He spoke his word. There's amazing healing power in the word of Jesus. So verse 12 tells us, immediately he arose, took up his bed, and went out in the presence of them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like that. I love it because it's so characteristic of the Gospel of Mark. In the Gospel of Mark, everything happens immediately. It's one of the most used words in the Gospel of Mark. Immediately this, immediately that. And immediately the man arose. The man remembered what it was like to put strength in his legs that had long ago stopped moving. And he did what he could to make those dead limbs move. And they did move. By a miracle of Jesus, listen, that man was both forgiven and healed. And the power of Jesus to heal and the authority of Jesus to forgive sins was absolutely demonstrated on that day. And what was the result? Look at it right there. Everybody was amazed and they glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. That man walked out of there both forgiven and healed. The the friends were relieved, and the faith of the friends was absolutely vindicated. The religious leaders left, and they said, that man, Jesus, he's a real problem. we got to do something about that guy. The homeowner said, man, don't worry about the roof. I got it. And the crowd was, it says right there in verse 12, they were amazed. Now, you can only imagine the exhilaration in the man who was paralyzed when he walked out of there on his two legs. He feels the strength in his legs. He enjoys a good walk. Have you ever had to sit for a long time? I'm not talking about church. Look, this isn't that long. I mean, you had to sit for a long time, and just how good it is to get up and stretch your legs and walk around... Can you imagine what it's like to be paralyzed for many years and then have the immediate feeling to walk around? How wonderful that must feel. But don't you believe that there was something even more wonderful happening in that man's life? He knew that he was forgiven. I thank the Lord that we live in an age of medical miracles. And there's so much about medicine and science I don't understand. I shouldn't talk much about it because I'll just reveal my ignorance. But I know that doctors and nurses and hospitals help so many people. And they do so much good in this world. And we should be so grateful for that. But one thing that hospital can't do, one thing that the doctor can't do, as good as they are, is they can't forgive your sins. It would have been better for that paralyzed man if he only had to choose between one of the two. Are you going to go out of that house uh, healed or are you going to go out of that house forgiven? I'm telling you, as hard as it is to hear, the better choice for him would have been to go out of there forgiven. Now, I'm not trying to discount how Jesus comes to us in the midst of our physical pain. And how doctors and nurses and all the rest of it, and how Jesus himself, the great physician, can come and make all the difference. Listen, if you need prayer for healing, then you come forward and get prayer for healing. God is still in the business of doing that. 
But what I'm here to say is that there's an even greater work than doing that. And that greater work is being forgiven your sins. No one can forgive sins but God alone. And, and you have a sin issue to reconcile before God. And Jesus is your only hope. He can forgive those sins. You just need to come to him in an attitude of humble confession. Bring your heart before him. Now, let me end with this. When I read the Bible, not only do I like it to be like a movie running in my head, but I also like to put myself in the story. Do you ever do that? You kind of identify yourself with one of the characters in the story. I think that's a good thing to do. So let's kind of think of this story and let's put ourselves in the story. You ready to do this? Okay, well, first of all, let me make one thing clear. If you're going to put yourself in the story, you're not Jesus. All right? Jesus is Jesus. Okay, you're not Jesus. So let's just take that one off the table. Okay, so where do we identify here in the story? Well, number one, you might be most like the paralyzed man. You have problems in your life, and one of your problems is unforgiven sin. Now, you might not even recognize it. I really doubt that when the paralyzed man came to that house on that day, that either he or the four friends believed that his biggest problem was the forgiveness of sins. That's not normally how we think. But here's how it works. If God says it's a problem in your life, you got to believe him, even if you don't feel like it. By the way, the same thing works in medicine, doesn't it? Aren't there people who carry illness in their body, but they don't feel it until it gets to a far advanced stage? And necessarily, you can't necessarily wait until you feel the effects of the illness. If you catch it early, it's a lot easier to deal with. But there's people who, they, they are in great trouble, yet they would say, I feel fine. Listen, if your sin problem is not resolved before God through the person and work of Jesus Christ, through what he did on the cross to, to, to suffer as a substitute in our place, to take all the guilt and shame that our sin deserved, if your sin problem isn't dealt with that, you've got a sin problem even if you don't feel it this morning. I'm pleading with you, don't wait until you feel it. Realize Jesus Christ is here to bring you the forgiveness of sins. Well, you might be most like the religious leaders. Listen, you got a religious heart, but here's your problem. You've talked yourself into an excessive skepticism. And you sort of demand that Jesus plays by your rules. You won't let Jesus be God. I'll tell you what you need to do. Jesus is challenging your skepticism right now this morning. You've been talking yourself into this excessive skepticism. Leave it aside. Let Jesus be God and just receive that right now. Then there's a third group of people here. You might be most like the men who lowered the paralyzed friend down to Jesus. Right now, here's where you're at. You are believing God for miracles in the lives of other people. 
there's people who are dear to you. Maybe that person is a parent. Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's a grandchild. Maybe it's a relative. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's just an associate. But you've come to church here this morning. You have desperately believed God to do a miracle in the lives of... I want to tell you something. Jesus sees your faith. Put your faith in Jesus all over again and hold on to that rope even though your arms are cramping up. Jesus has hope for you and your friend. Can we just, in a settled moment right now, say, Jesus, wherever I am in the story, if I'm that paralyzed man, if I'm like those skeptical religious leaders, if I'm like the friends, Jesus, I need to receive something from you. And I hope we'll all be like the crowd that left that day, amazed with who Jesus is and what he does in our lives. Father in heaven, that's my prayer for this precious congregation. I pray, God, that by the power of Jesus in our midst, Lord, that's the wonderful thing. We, we, we read a wonderful story this morning, Lord, but it's not just a story. It's the living, powerful word of God. So I pray that you would work in individual lives here today and just draw us to that place of real, joyful embrace of who Jesus is, the one who heals, and even more importantly, that the one who forgives our sins. We receive it before you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.